The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. After the news today, I interview Stonehill College professor of political science and international relations, Anna Ohanyan. Uh, Professor Hanyan and I discussed the situation in the South Caucasus, Azerbaijan and Turkey's attack on Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and the responsibility of the international community. Here are a few headlines from over the weekend and this morning. Up to 1,000 homes and 6,000 acres have been burned in what is being called the most destructive blaze in Colorado's history. Throughout 2021, numerous national retailers increased their minimum pay rates. In 2022, more than half of the states in the U.S. will increase their own minimum wages. Nationally, the federal minimum wage in the U.S. is $7.25, a rate that hasn't been raised since 2009. As of fall of 2021, 16 states have minimum wage rates at the federal level. In the new year, 26 states will implement an increase to the minimum wage. California will have the highest state rate at $15 an hour. Parts of New York, including New York City, will have a $15 minimum wage as well. Two of Prince Andrew's avenues to prevent or stall the progression of the sex assault lawsuit against him were blocked on Saturday by a federal judge, increasing pressure to settle claims before a crucial court hearing this week. A growing number of colleges and universities are making changes to the beginning of the 2022 spring semester as a result of the surge in cases of COVID-19. On Friday, the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health reported a record number of new COVID-19 cases, 27,091, as hospitalizations continued to rise. There were 1,464 patients in county hospitals on Friday, up 99 from the day before. Of those, 218 were in intensive care, up four from Thursday. Omicron is sweeping the country, becoming the dominant COVID strain in just a matter of days, smashing hopes for a return to normal anytime soon. President Biden came into office vowing to get the pandemic under control, now he is outlining yet another strategy, this time to combat Omicron. He said the federal government will distribute 500 million free at-home test kits starting in January and dispatch 1,000 military medical personnel to help overburden hospitals. It will also create vaccination and testing sites. While much of this will take time to implement, Biden issued an immediate plea to unvaccinated Americans. Get vaccinated now. It's free. It's convenient. I promise you, it saves lives. And I honest to God believe it's your patriotic duty. And we begin this morning with the president's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, thank you for joining us. We, we just heard the details of the president's uh, latest strategy uh, to deal with the pandemic. Let me just ask you, bottom line, 
What in what he announced is going to help deal with the immediate crisis, this rapid spread of Omicron? Well, there are a few things. The one that would be immediate is to make sure, given the rapid spread of this extraordinary variant, uh, that we don't get an overrun on hospitals, particularly in those regions in which you have a larger proportion of unvaccinated individuals. We want to make sure that, given the sheer volume of number of cases that you see now every day, it goes up and up. The last weekly average was about 150,000, and it likely will go much higher. The president's multi-part component of the response is to make sure that we have adequate backup for hospitals with military personnel, doctors, nurses, and other health care providers, making sure that there's enough PPE and that, if needed, there's enough ventilators in the national strategic stockpile. Those are the things that are immediate. Obviously, testing, John, is going to be very important that we get a greater capability of testing, particularly when the demand for testing is so high or at a combination of the Omicron variant itself, as well as the holiday season where people want to get that extra level of assuredness that they're protected, even if you are vaccinated and boosted. One of the problems is that that's not going to be totally available to everyone until we get to January, and there are still some issues now of people having trouble getting tested. But we're addressing the testing problem, and that very soon that that will be corrected. So the president seemed to me to be quite defensive when he was asked about that, particularly when David Muir asked him, asked him about the, the testing issue. He said that this has not been a failure. But, I mean, I, I've I've been asking questions about testing I, so often with you standing uh, uh, with with the others uh, at, at the podium uh, since you know the beginning of the pandemic. Testing was a colossal failure in the early days, and why is it that now, nearly two years in, we still we still don't have affordable tests widely available to anybody uh, who needs it? I mean, this must frustrate you, I imagine, as well. Well, obviously it does, John. I mean, even with the amount, I mean, if you look at the beginning of the administration, the beginning of the year, there were essentially no rapid point of care home tests available. Now there are over nine of them and more coming. The production of them has been rapidly upscaled. And yet because of the demand that we have, which in some respects, John, is good that we have a high demand because we should be using testing much more extensively than we have, even in a situation where you have people who are vaccinated or boosted. But the situation where you have such a high demand, a conflation of events, Omicron stirring people to get appropriately concerned and wanting to get tested, as well as the fact of the run on tests during the holiday season. We've obviously got to do better. I mean, I think things will improve greatly as we get into January, but that doesn't help us today and tomorrow. So you're right. That is something that is of concern. So in terms of Omicron, we, we know how wildly contagious it is. Uh, but but what, what is your sense about how, what do we really know about how sick people are getting from this? As you know, there was data out of South Africa that suggested that it was less than 2% of those that were infected uh, were hospitalized. That compared with about 20% that had been hospitalized under the under the Delta wave. That, by the way, is a country that doesn't have 
uh, you know, at anywhere near the kind of vaccination level that we have. And, and we saw some indications out of out of England, too, that it seemed to be less severe. What what is you are, are you comfortable now in saying that that Omicron is yeah. wildly contagious, but not as severe a disease? Well, there's one thing that's for sure that we all agree upon, that it is extraordinarily contagious. It's just outstripped even the most contagious of the previous ones, including Delta. There's no argument on anybody's part about that. When we first saw the data from the UK, that it was very clear that the ratio of hospitalizations to cases was lower. Uh, Interestingly, the duration of hospital stay was lower. The need for oxygen was lower. And when you're in a demographic situation like South Africa, where you have most of the people have gotten infected with prior variants, either the Delta or the Beta, that it was very likely a combination of perhaps the virus is inherently less virulent or more likely there's an underlying degree of residual protection from prior infections of those who've been infected and survived. The data from the UK and uh, particularly Scotland and England, two separate studies, really confirm that. They're seeing less of a severity in the form of manifestations by hospitalizations. The issue that we don't want to get complacent about, John, is that when you have such a high volume of new infections, it might override a real diminution in severity. So that if you have many, many, many more people with a less level of severity, that might kind of neutralize the positive effect of having less severity when you have so many more people. And we're particularly worried about those who are in that unvaccinated class that, you know, tens and tens of millions of Americans who are eligible for vaccination who have not been vaccinated. Those are the most vulnerable ones when you have a virus that is extraordinarily effective in getting to people and infecting them the way Omicron is. So even though we're pleased by the evidence from multiple countries that it looks like there is a lesser degree of severity, we've got to be careful that we don't get complacent about that. So, because it might still lead to a lot of hospitalizations in the United States. Right. So, so as an individual, your chance of having severe disease and needing to go to the hospital if you, uh, if you get infected with Omicron might be less. Because there are so many more, uh, the hospitals could still, could still be overrun. Uh, let, let me... That is, yeah, that's the concern. That's the concern. Um, let me ask you about something else uh, from, from the president's interview with, with David. Uh, the, David asked uh, about uh, the vaccine, the lack of a vaccine requirement for air travel. There is no vaccine requirement for domestic air travel in the United States. Um, and, and when the president was asked, should there be one, he said that his team has, has said it's not necessary uh, at this point. Do, do you agree with that? That, that, that there shouldn't be a vaccine requirement for domestic air travel? Well, it depends on what you want to use it for. I mean, vaccine requirements for people coming in from other countries is to prevent newly infected people from getting into the country. A vaccine requirement for a person getting on the plane is just another level of getting people to have a mechanism that would spur them to get vaccinated. Namely, you can't get on a plane unless you're vaccinated, which is just another one of the ways of getting requirements, whatever that might be. 
So, I mean, anything that could get uh, people more vaccinated would be welcome. But with regard to the spread of virus in the country, I mean, I think if you look at wearing a mask and the filtration on, on planes, things are reasonably safe. We want to make sure people keep their masks on. I think the idea of taking masks off, in my mind, is, is really not something we should even be considering. Which but is, that's what we meant by it depends on what the goal of getting people vaccinated before they get on a domestic flight. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the, the airline CEOs were suggesting that, uh, you know, that, that we may not no, may no longer need a mask. I hear you loud and clearly you disagree with that on, on, an, on the airplane. Oh. You know, it was interesting on this question of vaccination. I, I'm sure you saw President Trump, former President Trump, uh, said, came out and said that he uh, had received the booster shot. He actually got booed a little bit by the crowd of support of his supporters as he said that. And now, uh, you know, there, there's another uh, interview he just did uh, with a, a conservative outlet with Candace Owens, where he really pushed back on the idea uh, that the vaccine is not protecting people. He said that the people going to hospitals are... Uh, are, are the ones largely that, that haven't been vaccinated. You don't die if you get the vaccine. That, those, were, those were Donald Trump's words. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if his supporters listen to that. Well, I certainly hope so, uh, John. We'll take anything we can get about getting people vaccinated. I was a bit dismayed when former President Trump came out and made that statement and his followers booed him, which I, I was stunned by that. I mean, given the fact of how popular he is with that group, that they would boo him, which tells me how recalcitrant they are about being told what they should do. And I think that his continuing to say that people should get vaccinated and articulating that to them, in my mind, is a good thing. I hope he keeps it up. Yeah, let's hope he says it loudly and clearly. Hey, before you go, one question with some news uh, this week, uh, did a second antiviral pill, this one by Merck, uh, has been approved for emergency use authorization by the FDA. This one not quite as effective uh, as the Pfizer pill, which is 89% effective in, in preventing hospitalizations and death. Is, is, this, is this really the breakthrough that, 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 that you've been waiting for? Do you think ultimately that our path out of this, I know the emphasis now is on vaccines, but, but that, 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 that these antiviral treatments uh, could be ultimately the real silver bullet? John, I, I, I agree with you that a highly effective orally administered, and that's the critical issue. There are two things that are really encouraging about this uh, approval of these, particularly the Pfizer product, which is about 90% effective in preventing you from getting to the hospital or dying compared to placebo. That's part of the comprehensive approach to this outbreak. Vaccines and boosters masks, and now very importantly, a highly effective therapy is really going to make a major, major difference. We've just got to make sure that there's the production of enough of that product that we can get it widely used for those who need it as quickly as possible. I assume that will be a top priority going forward, right? I mean, possibly including Defense Authorization Act, Production Authorization Act, and, and, and the like. Absolutely, John. Absolutely. We've got to get that product into the mouths of those who need it. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to tell you about a couple of conversations I had with uh, two friends the last uh, few days. Uh, one of them uh, is very sort of vigilant about everything that comes out about COVID-19 
The other one tested positive after having been vaccinated and uh, gotten his booster shot, which is a possibility that we all know exists. I personally have been vaccinated and have had my booster shot. And so what I realized from talking to them is that uh, there's still a lot of um, sort of lack of clarity, confusion, misinformation, disinformation, uh, even propaganda out there that people are struggling with um, to figure out what's what's true, what's not. And of course, things are changing very rapidly, so it's difficult to uh, to um, you know keep you know keep in keep on top of everything. Uh, of course, there's the CDC and there's the World Health Organization that one can go to get a lot of this information, but it's not that simple because a lot of times they get a little too academic and medical and such. And I don't know what the answer is in terms of how this information can be simplified and uh, delivered to um, the masses, not just people in the medical establishment, so that uh, the you know these disinformation and these um, uh, all these sort of weird propaganda things that come out uh, don't affect people and what they think. Uh, and sometimes people are really confused just about the different strengths of the coronavirus. You know the differences between uh, Omicron and Delta and such. Uh, some people are confused about what the what the vaccination does and what it does doesn't do um, and the risks of travel and risks of this in fact I was reading about a British study it's supposed to be a reputable uh, British study uh, that concluded that, that masks and I'm not I'm not saying to do this at all I'm not saying this is true I'm just telling you uh, about a study that's out there that says masks, in fact, can increase the chances of getting, getting COVID-19 because it traps the virus in your mask and then you can get it faster. I don't know if it's true or if it's not. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but it's out there. And the point is that uh, people are reading it and uh, it's, you know, it's uh, making an effect. And we all know that uh, we've been told at least that we should all wear masks and it protects us and other people, um, especially other people. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if, uh, if uh, there is a way for people to get this information uh, quicker, simpler than simply turning on CNN or going on CDC's website or just Googling or reading uh, news articles and, and such. But point is when there's a lack of information or lack of accurate information uh, that's um, delivered fast and in a simple way it creates confusion and then it leaves room for uh, all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of uh, you know fantasies and uh, fantastical uh, hypotheses for people to come up with. Uh, so um, there you have it. I mean, uh, again, this is, this is really just about my feedback of people I've spoken with, and I, there seems to be a lot of confusion, even among educated people who are in tune with what's going on. 
uh, and uh, but we just need to sort of keep dealing with it, getting blunt and uh, voicing our concerns. So there you have it. Let's get blunt. There's a lot to be thankful for. If you're thankful for the old family vehicle, you can let it help one more time by donating it to the KPFK Vehicle Donation Program. The proceeds will help KPFK continue the quality programming you depend on throughout the year. The vehicle donation number is 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-573-5288. Our representative will take care of everything. That number again is 877-KPFK-AUTO. Or donate online at kpfk.org. Patty Smith, and you're listening to Fiercely Independent Pacifica Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM. People have the power. Dear friends of KPFK, my husband, Blaise Bonpain, and I became supporters and contributors to KPFK in 1969. All of this startling and non-startling historical events that have happened since then, and there were so many, made us constantly go to KPFK so we would be better informed and activated So many times we said, we need KPFK more than ever, and we always did rely on them. Today, more than ever, ever, we need KPFK. We all know that, and we all must do everything we can to keep KPFK alive and vital. Blaze would look down on us with his smile as we do so. Thank you, Teresa Bonpain. The Blunt Post with Vic. Anna Ohanyan is a Richard B. Finnegan Distinguished Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Stonehill College in Massachusetts and a two-times Fulbright Scholar to the South Caucasus. She's an author and editor of five books and numerous academic articles. Her most recent book is forthcoming in 2022 with Stanford University Press titled The Neighborhood Effect, The Imperial Roots of Regional Fracture in Eurasia. And first thing I want to ask you, as a genocide expert and scholar, um, what is your perspective and take on what happened last year in Artsakh uh, in terms of Azerbaijan and Turkey's uh, attack on Artsakh Armenians? Um, in terms of that, let me just qualify this by saying that genocide studies is not my primary area of expertise. But every generally trained political scientist um, will point out that what transpired in the fall uh, in 2020 um, was the very explicit jolt to the narrative that this conflict is a post-Soviet war and Turkey's participation, direct support in all kinds of ways of Azerbaijan 
signaled, and this is an unrepentant genocidal power, signaled, sort of created this very uh, um, uh, the connection between uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and its most recent manifestation in the twilight years of the Soviet Union to the pre-Soviet period when Armenians were um, essentially were in this push and pull between two empires and genocide. Armenian genocide in the Ottoman Empire was a, a, a huge background to uh, the conflict that was unfolding even then. Um, the way it played out uh, in the last war is that uh, Turkey-backed Azerbaijani offensive did attack, uh, continued to attack uh, human, um, civilian targets. And since the end of the war, also as important, um, uh, Aliyev's, uh, Aliyev regime continues with coercive tactics and intimidation, largely to intimidate, I would argue, the Armenian population in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and he has never offered, while critics are calling, pointing, arguing that Armenia is an aggressor, he has never offered any security guarantees for the Armenian population, Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. So um, uh, this, there was an ethnic cleansing, I would argue, uh, was a key component, the way it was uh, carried, the war was carried out with war crimes being committed and Turkey's uh, participation in this war, um, Turkey being an unrepentant power did create, um, provided the background that this is something much bigger going on than simply labeling this as a post-Soviet war happening in Russia's quote unquote near abroad. So what was their um, <clears throat> what was their end game, or what is their end game? Whose end game? Turkey's or Let's Russia's? start with um, Azerbaijan. Um, there are a variety uh, of different ways of answering that question, and it depends. When we say Azerbaijan, who do we mean? Uh, on the one hand, um, Aliyev regime. There is a one narrative that does get lost very often is that the war took place at a time during the COVID, right, during the pandemic, but also at a time uh, when there were already protests against another dictatorial power uh, in, in, the, in Lukashenko, Belarus's Lukashenko, who was uh, uh, really taking up pressures, their unprecedented protest movement there uh, after the elections there in August 9, 2020. So, in this respect, this war was very much a regime survival war, not unlike the offensive, Azerbaijani offensive attack in 2016, which was linked to the declining oil prices. So Azerbaijani economy is very much a boom and bust economy and a regime survival is a huge factor for the Aliyev regime. This is an unreformed, unreformed economy um, it's a petrol state that does not have capacity, productive capacities, and it translates pushes for centralization of power, militarization of its foreign policy. So that played a role. As opposed, opposed to its end game, I think uh, Aliyev, um, when uh, Aliyev government, Aliyev regime has been quite coercive, uh, after, even after the war, Aliyev has been using 
very very uh, aggressive militaristic language, making claims to Armenia's territorial borders. Um, and uh, on the one hand, some would argue that's for domestic consumption, but at the same time, there is a much broader game of quote unquote authoritarian coordination happening. The fact that illiberalism is on the rise worldwide, that Azerbaijani actions, militarization went unchallenged, that he bulldozed through a peace process, all of that really allowed him, enabled him in his continued coercive tactic, even after uh, uh, Azerbaijan registered so many gains after the war. So it should not, his end game for his regime survival, I don't think Aliyev is content to see that with Armenia's democratic breakthrough, now South Caucasus has a much stronger democratic pull two nascent struggling democracies in Georgia and Armenia, but still that really puts a pressure on unreformed Azerbaijani state. And the war was Aliyev's answer to pull in Turkey in really changing this equation. Uh, Aliyev cannot afford to see a successful economic success in its uh, neighboring uh, democratic societies, particularly as the oil prices, as the oil resources are um, actually uh, under stress uh, in Azerbaijan, global capital markets are greening. So there are broader um, macroeconomic oil-related factors that need to be considered here. But his end game, some of the theatrics surrounding Zangezu corridor, um, the Turkey the connecting with the Turkish people, all of it, that is a reflection of um, uh, nationalizing uh, foreign policy, national heightening nationalism domestically, which is the only oxygen that keeps him in power. Um, I don't think that he has an end game. In the short term, uh, he continues to claim that there is no uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict is resolved. There is no issue of status. Uh, at the most that Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh will get is cultural autonomy. Um, and this very much flies in the face of the global trends uh, in regards to state formation conflicts, meaning that uh, worldwide, uh, armed conflicts, state formation conflicts, ethnic conflicts have been going down, but they have been going down because, and I'm using a jargon here, quote unquote, accommodative capacities within states are on the rise, meaning that uh, uh, issues of peacekeeping presence, con conflicts that have peacekeeping presence, conflicts that have greater democracy, conflicts where territorial autonomies have more rights, all of these factors help to bring down the global trends of armed conflict. Um, so I honestly, I mean, he signals that he does not consider the status of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, he considers it resolved, but I would argue that the status of Nagorno-Karabakh, Nagorno, uh, the rights of Armenian community, Nagorno-Karabakh for self-determination, self-governance, these are things that are often denied to uh, Azerbaijani people inside Azerbaijan. So in a very interesting way, uh, the claim for status is a very much uh, flies in the face of Azerbaijani uh, claim as to what kind of state Azerbaijan is going to be. Makes sense. Thank you. That was very thorough. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. 
I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Professor Anna Ohanyan. The good news is, I suppose, is, um, well, lately we've heard a, a lot more from the, the American ambassador in Yerevan, and she's, she's made it clear that, uh, according to the U.S., the issue is not resolved, which I think is, uh, you know, and on one hand, it's, it's very little, but uh, I think it's packed with meaning. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something to, to um, France is also very much on that with Russia. One never knows. I, I, before I ask you about Russia, let's go back to Turkey and Erdogan's endgame. Um, things in Turkey have been taking an interesting turn uh, since the failed coup attempt in Turkey. Um, Erdogan, since coming to power, uh, initially he, he was pursuing uh, a policy of trying to um, peacefully resolve the Kurdish conflict inside Turkey, trying to uh, resolve all of its conflicts with its neighbors. But after the coup attempt, uh, Turkey has been nosediving, unfortunately, to deep authoritarianism. There are still very few democratic institutions that are holding um, electoral institutions in particular, but even there, they have been politicized. Um, So Turkey's authoritarianism has been going hand in hand with its increasing Islamization of its foreign policy. So Erdogan has been trying to carve a role for himself as the defender of Islam, uh, of the Muslim world in the mainstream Middle East, Islamic countries, but that has not been sitting well, has been challenging, putting him at odds with uh, some of the governments in, in the Middle East. So on the one, that's one trend. And another one, Turkey has been trying to project a more autonomous foreign policy. Um, I would say that it has been Turkey uh, under Erdogan is trying to have its cake and eat it too, but I'm not sure it can be successful. On the one hand, it continues to remain engaged in the Western Euro-Atlantic structures, whether it's NATO, um, free trade agreements with Europe. Uh, on the other hand, it tries to push back and uh, assert greater autonomy um, and tries to carve a better, bigger role in the Middle East, quite, unsex- uh, quite unsu- unsuccessful. Yeah. I might argue. So in that respect, um, Turkey's end game, uh, and the, where this is in the backdrop of the uh, currency crisis, looming currency crisis uh, inside Turkey, um, Azerbaijan, um, Turkey does need its economy to recover uh, for the upcoming presidential elections. Um, so, but it, this uh, aggressive foreign policy that Erdogan has been waging is not supporting is contrary to a stability that um, investors need. Uh, So it does not have much economic rationale, I would argue, beyond supporting the military uh, industrial sector that it uh, that is trying to build. Um, So it's end game. It depends as to what happens domestically in Turkey. I'm not expecting that Turkey will become more democratic with the next elections. Some of the opposition forces are also very nationalistic, but I think if democratic institutions hold in Turkey, that is good news for the region. Um, And that will make Turkey a lot more predictable power. Um, 
Another important theme is that we are in the we are entering a period of so-called post-American hegemony, weakening rules-based world order. This means that the West is not going to defend this negotiated rules-based um, conflict management um, uh, formats as much as it could and would. Uh, it remains to be seen, but it does create an opening for illiberal powers such as Turkey and Russia and China in taking a more... Um, having to take a, a, a greater role in managing their neighborhoods, whether they will be doing that using their neighborhoods uh, as, as sort of forums to build peaceful neighborhoods to play a role of a benign power, or alternatively, they will use these neighborhoods to create fracture, to project global influence, that remains to be seen. But judging from Turkey's um, domestic economic woods, I would, uh, I would hope that Turkey uh, will come around in terms of participating effectively and in good faith in building a regional stability in the South Caucasus. I wanna come back to Turkey, but I wanna go into Russia, which is a, sort of an anomaly or, or just a mystery to a lot of us as to uh, where, where does Putin stand? Uh, how much did he know? How much was he involved in, in last year's attack? Uh, of course, you know, he's, he's, a, you know, he's trying to do what's best for Russia himself. Naturally, uh, a lot has been said about, you know, Russia being the winner of all this or the ultimate winner or the biggest winner. Um, some think that it was all sort of um, a part of the equation and something that he was, um, uh, he, he was just uh, improvising to get the best that he could as things were rolling. What is your perspective on Putin and Russia and their involvement with, uh, with what happened to Artsakh and now? Um, I, uh, there are so many claims as to how much Russia knew. You hear all kinds of analysis and theories that this was orchestrated by Russia, that it would not have happened without Russia's permission, that uh, the, the way things settled, it essentially was the result of the Lavrov plan, which Russia, the Kremlin has been pushing for a while. Honestly, these are to be, as a researcher, as a social scientist, these are all speculations. We just don't know. And I just don't know how much Russia um, uh, was involved in the, war, in the war. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I just don't know. However, I don't think that Russia, uh, Russia definitely improvised, but also emerged tactically as, uh, as a winner, at least short-term winner. It was the only power that was able to stop the war. Uh, and uh, used that opportunity quite effectively in placing its, uh, its peacekeeping troops, its troops uh, in, in the region, something that uh, Russia has been trying to do for a while. Um, but at the same time, as we see after the war, um, put the Kremlin has been ineffective actually, providing the implementing the very agreement that it negotiated. Uh, Azerbaijan advances of the Azerbaijani forces into Armenian territory under the guise of border limitation exposed the sad truth that Armenia lacks security guarantees, even when, 
even if it comes to its international borders. So this was a myth that was always there. And in this respect, I would argue that in terms of security, Armenia is naked. And uh, in that respect, it's not that different. Armenia's situation is not that different from that of Georgia, from that of Ukraine, uh, and to a certain extent from that of Taiwan relative to China. Obviously, the condition is somewhat different. Uh, but what is important, uh, so in, at the same time, what, what is really critical here is that uh, Russia also, it became explicit that Russia does not have full control over the region, continued border square skirmishes. Azerbaijan continues to pressure the border in order to force Armenia to sign a quote-unquote peace agreement, meaning to give up um, any claims or advocacy on behalf of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, there was very little that Russia could have, was able to do in this respect. And it's the Europeans, the European involvement that has been providing the, so far, the stability that is needed. Um, since signing the agreement, I have actually did write on this, arguing that uh, the Russia cannot negotiate the ceasefire agreement, but Russia, it's such a complicated document. Russia cannot, does not have the capacity or perhaps even the political will to implement that very agreement. Any peace building exercise requires engagement with civil society actors. But that is contrary to uh, the authoritarian uh, systems, which do not do engagement with civil society actors. Azerbaijan crushed civil society actors, particularly those peace builders who were working, trying to work with Armenian peace builders in parallel to the OSCE Minsk group uh, that was unfolding. So that is a, um, I don't know whether Russia lacks the capacity, definitely lacks the capacity, I would say, in order to push forward a targeted strategic peace building agenda. Um, but the political will, I just don't know what, what Putin is thinking. I would argue it is in the interest, in the Russian interest to have to be surrounded by peaceful neighborhoods. Um, but uh, the Kremlin might see, um, uh, may perceive stability, security differently, looking at these sources of hot spots and instabilities around its peripheries as a way to use them to project power globally. Uh, but I do want to highlight the agreement in the ceasefire agreement that called for uh, unblocking um, the region. When I saw that argument, I was actually uh, quite somewhat surprised um, that this is something that Russia and Azerbaijan would produce uh, to a certain extent that is that unblocking and connectivity, transportation and trade, all of those are somewhat liberal um, right. approaches to solving a conflict. But of course, even authoritarian governments need better connectivity. So I think that holds the most promise that better connectivity, better trade routes are in the interest of everyone. And that if there's great, the they essentially will help to increase the cost of a future war. Having the two societies so separate is very, very dangerous. So that's just a few points on that uh, component in the, uh, in the agreement. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Professor Anna Ohanyan. First, I enjoyed your uh, 
your take on Putin and Russia, I think, was very pragmatic. And it makes sense because there is or there are a lot of speculations and uh, sort of unfounded claims and statements out there about that. So it's interesting. I was surprised that you said, or at least your your analysis is that Russia doesn't have the capacity or as much of the capacity as we thought it would to have control over the region and the implementation of the the protocols and such. So that's also interesting. And then last thing is I like that you um, highlighted what's positive about the agreement and what, you know, uh, the silver lining, if you will. But you also said something about Europe and that Europe's uh, involvement was um, uh, gave a little bit of security to Armenia, which stands naked, quoting you. France obviously has come out as, you know, the biggest advocate and supporter of Armenia for whatever is worth. And uh, President Macron, uh, you know, he, he discussed um, deploying his troops under the auspices of the UN. What happened with that, um, do you think? Um, I don't, for international peacekeepers to be deployed, in general, UN peacekeepers, um, uh, there has to be an agreement by the Security Council. And in this case, that I don't see that happening because Russia would veto it. Um, but whether France would do it on its own, um, that again would put it in conflict. It had to be coordinated uh, with Russia. If let's say Armenia did invite uh, the, Fran- the peacekeepers from France, um, it, Armenia still has security uh, alignments and connections and peacekeeping and, and troops uh, in its country. So it has to be negotiated by uh, between France and Russia. I don't Which think is what Armenia. I which is uh, yeah, I, I don't think Armenia can just pull in uh, France on its own. With all of the challenges with the Russia partnership that I mentioned, Russia is not going anywhere. And um, uh, and Armenia's uh, the, the challenge of Armenia's diplomacy is to engage, uh, continue to engage with Russia while constantly trying to recalibrate the relationship. And uh, uh, essentially by pushing for greater transparency, by hedging and bringing in greater European presence there because uh, Russia would need to, in order to substantiate its presence in in Nagorno-Karabakh beyond the deadline, something that Azerbaijani people are not so sure that actually Aliyev uh, does not want Russian peacekeepers in Azerbaijan actually Many think that that's the case. I don't think so. I think Azerbaijan does need the peacekeepers there in order to play off Russia and Turkey against one another. Uh, But Azerbaijani people, there's a lot of resentment and pushback against uh, Azerbaijani, I'm sorry, uh, Russian peacekeepers there. So uh, viewed in this context, Russia does need cooperation with Europe. Um, whether it's European Union or bilateral or the OSCE Minsk Group, uh, because that engagement will help Russia to justify its presence in the region. Uh, ideally, down the road, it would be good for Armenia 
for the region, for the Armenians Nagorno-Karabakh to have international peacekeepers, uh, along with Russian peacekeeping troops. Uh, I think that is an outcome that would provide the most stability, would provide the most political window for genuine uh, peace building across countries, across conflict lines to take place. Um, ultimately, you can cheat geography. Turkey and Azerbaijan are not going anywhere, but the challenge is to increase the, the cost of warfare for Azerbaijan, which so far has been resorting to militarization because it can, right? But that's devastating, not only for Armenia, but also for Azerbaijan. It's just, we uh, in Azerbaijan, you cannot talk loudly about the cost of warfare for Azerbaijan. That's not something that you can raise. Um, few uh, people, actually uh, activists from Azerbaijan that I am not going to name have mentioned that there are in Azerbaijan after the war, there have been over 25 um, suicides among war veterans and that soldiers, the veterans seem to be completely disengaged from the society. They come out at the end of the day, just aggregate in various parts. So this uh, Aliyev's uh, sort of war rhetoric, the victory rhetoric uh, has deepened authoritarianism. You probably have seen um, renewed crash of civil society groups and opposition forces. So there are losers. Uh, no one wins from wars, militarization, on its own is, uh, is, is very dangerous, particularly when it happens, when there is a peace process going on. And what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh is exactly that, bulldozing through peace processes and something that you see creates a dangerous precedent in the case of Ukraine, uh, where right after the war, there were voices actually advocating for, for Ukraine to take over, to take retake Donbass by force. Um, so negotiated settlements, which offer much more durable ending to conflicts, are public good for the regions. And it's that that the world needs to be worked towards and that militarization cannot be justified under the trap of territorial integrity. Right, territorial integrity does not justify militarization and violence in international law. Uh, they're losers uh, from militarization, not uh, from all sides of the conflict. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Professor Anna Ohanyan. You seem to be very practical and pragmatic. Um, obviously, you're you're a scholar and an academic, so. Will we see recognition of Artsakh? Um, so status of Artsakh, I think that's a question that is not uh, specific to the region. In a, while there are different conflicts, uh, Artsakh status uh, as a de facto unrecognized state uh, is one of several string of unrecognized states that challenged the, challenged the international law in many respects. You have South Ossetia, you have Abkhazia in Georgia, Taiwan is a de facto state, you would argue, also not enjoying uh, broad rec international recognition. Um, so then you have the the... Uh, cases in sub-Saharan Africa, um, the, the, whether Artsakh will receive independence and recognition or not, um, 
I think it's hard to tell. It depends as to in this post-American hegemonic world order, how will international institutions, whether they will come together in protecting minority rights. When the Soviet Union was collapsing, the Western world rushed to recognize the 15 republics and playing really giving lip service to the minorities that lived in the states. And the conflicts in Georgia, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Moldova are very much a reflection of that trend. Um, right now, um, Russia does provide the best security for Artsakh. Um, it did save, Russian presence did save the Armenians from ethnic cleansing because Azerbaijan, Turkey backed Azerbaijan was intent on going all the way. And all the way meant that it would be a humanitarian carnage, which was stopped by the Russian forces. So that's critical. So Russia's continued presence will provide one pathway to provide no legal recognition, but continued de facto existence as um, uh, Armenians in Artsakh continue to strengthen their institutions of self-governance, um, which they have been doing for the past 30 years. One route of um, international recognition, and Armenia has to work through international bodies, would be, and many um, the lawyers, international lawyers from Armenia have been looking at this, is the claim for immediate sovereignty, considering that Azerbaijan Aliyev in particular, as an authoritarian state, um, has made no security guarantees, has the, his language, Aliyev, the language coming from Aliyev regime is not uh, very conciliatory. Um, there is very little that uh, Armenians living in Artsakh uh, can consider to even entertain living as part of Azerbaijan. So that makes it very difficult for them to see that path. It has to be, uh, and of course, just working through international uh, means is the way to go, I would argue. Uh, but again, I think uh, the politics of it um, international remedial sovereignty is the way forward. And just Ali, if, if, if Azerbaijan was not an authoritarian state, I probably would advocate for uh, Artsakh to continue to build its territorial autonomy. It would have territorial autonomy, have a strong connection with Armenia and be part of Azerbaijan, not unlike the conflict in Northern Ireland was ended with the Good Friday Agreement. But that Azerbaijan is a petro state. Uh, it has them. It has an uh, has uh, had a demonstrated amply uh, attacks on Armenian community. There is anti-Armenian state-sanctioned language and rhetoric that is there that just fueled so much animosity that just makes it very, very unstable and uh, inconceivable for Armenians to live as part of Azerbaijan, at least for at least now. Um, one last question. I'll let you go and you can get some rest. Uh, give us a positive or not maybe positive, just hopeful or in the future kind of a soundbite. Um, I do think I'm reading this really exciting book called uh, Non-Zero. I'm forget, bro. I, I think by right, <laughs> I'm blanking on the title. But the argument is that the arc of history is towards cooperation um, and the towards, towards coexistence. It is, I think the 
currently flurry diplomatic activity, um, continued diplomacy for regional land blocking, some doing it grudgingly than others. All of that will help in increasing the cost of warfare. The more connections, the more connectivity between Armenia, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, the better it is for the region. And United States, the Western world has been talking and worrying about democratic declines, uh, liberalism around the world. Well, I think solving, leaning on diplomatically, much more forcefully on unresolved conflicts is an important pathway to saving democracy around the world. Unresolved conflicts are front lines of authoritarian resurgence. And the West really needs to do its part in leaning in more strongly, diplomatically, in solving these conflicts within the rules-based, rights-based framework. Um, I do think that's where we're headed. Well, Anna, thank you. That was great. A lot of dense, I, lot of yeah. dense information. Sorry, I tend to be dense. I'm trying to speak no, more. No, it's great. That's <laughs> that's what it, this is for. I mean, we're... Yeah, you're stuck with a professor, uh, college professor. Speaking yeah. clearly is not our strength. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. It's, uh, you know, the film is a good balance between uh, solid information, uh, eyewitness things, I, you know, eyewitness accounts, mm-hmm. uh, and from different people in different perspectives. Uh, of course, we want to be informative, first and foremost. So no, this is really good stuff. Um, Thank you. That was my interview with Professor Anna Ohanian from Stonehill College, who is uh, a wealth of information on uh, international relations and caucuses, of course, uh, especially the South Caucuses. Uh, Thank you, Professor Ohanian, for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.